The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. As a part of our body. Uh, Amen. Singing about the blood of Jesus. That's a blessing. I don't know about you, but I'm just thrilled by that. A couple of quick things that I want to announce to you. We had uh, taken or received our move offering in September, and when the month closed out in September, uh, we have a report. I'd like to just say, man, thank the Lord for the giving, extra giving above and beyond our normal giving and tithes and offerings. And we received 69, just shy of $69,000 for our move offering uh, in August or so or in September. So let's thank the Lord for that. Now, here, here's the good news and here's the challenge. That puts our mortgage, what we owe on this property, everything regarding it, that puts our mortgage currently to date at $137,000. Isn't that amazing? So we just want to thank the Lord for that. Our next move offering coming up, and we're believing God that we can retire this debt in 2019. Uh, yes, thank you. <laughs> Let's do that. We're, we're believing God that we're going to do that. And so our next move offering will be December the 15th on that Sunday. And so I want you to go ahead and be praying, asking the Lord, Lord, what is it that you would have me give above and beyond my uh, normal and regular giving so that we can retire this debt and be debt-free on this property and so that we can use that uh, as God would have us to use that for his kingdom purposes. And speaking of move offering, one of the things that we do through our your giving and the move offering, 50% of of our move offering goes towards missions. And this Friday, I believe it is, uh, Glenn Dyer and Terry Burkeen with Club 180 will be leaving on Friday. They'll be traveling to Liberia where we have 20 pastors there that you are a part of training in theological training who would never, ever have any opportunity for any kind of formal education. You are providing through your move offering an opportunity for these men to be educated and trained and equipped theologically and so Glenn and Terry are going to be traveling there. They'll be there for a week. And so they'll be teaching course three, which is New Testament survey to these pastors. And so I want to open the message time this morning by praying for Glenn. Glenn, would you just sit right there and where you are, just extend your hands to Glenn if you'd like to, but just agree with me in prayer that God would do through Glenn and Terry in those men's hearts. Father, we thank you so much. Lord, not only for the responsibility and the partnering that you have chosen to do through the body, uh, Lord, to make disciples of all nations. God, you have graced us with an opportunity here at First Conyers to be able to invest in 20 pastors there, God, who will invest in countless other Liberians, God, in their local churches and in the region. And Lord, um, Lord, it will bear fruit, this training that they're receiving. And so, God, we pray for Glenn and Terry in the coming week, God. We thank you for that opportunity to be there. Father, we ask that, Lord, your traveling mercies would be on them, God. We pray for the anointing over them, God, and in them as they teach these men, God. Father, we pray that you would stir in these men's heart there in Liberia a greater desire to see their country and the surrounding nations, Lord, be uh, one for Christ and discipled in him. Lord, we believe, and from the very beginning, God, that you were going to use these 20 men, Lord, not only to touch that whole nation of Liberia, but God, in the surrounding 
surrounding countries as well. And so, God, we pray, uh, Lord, that there'll be fruit that would bear 100-fold for your kingdom purposes. God, we thank you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, to the book of 1 John, the letter of 1 John. And we began a couple of weeks ago walking through this letter uh, beginning in the first chapter, we've gone through the first 10 verses, and I want to drop back this morning into verse 7, because in all of the context of what John has been talking about to these believers has been that the purpose that he's writing this letter, or one of the purposes that he's writing this letter to those believers, is that his desire would be that they too would have fellowship with the Father and the Son, and that those believers would have fellowship with John and others. So we see that to that horizontal and vertical fellowship going on there, that their desire was that, that we might have fellowship with the Father on a continual basis through His Son, and that we would have fellowship with one another. And then he zeroes in in verse 7, lest we overlook it, a key component of the source of that fellowship. He writes in the second part of verse 7, and read along there with me, the blood of His Son cleanses us from all sin. Amen. The blood of His Son cleanses us from all sin, and it's through the blood of Jesus and the cleansing of our sin that we can now have fellowship, communion with God, and we can also have communion with one another. Apart from the blood of Jesus, that would not be possible. When we look at our nation's history from the very dawn of our independence, the Revolutionary War, to the current wars that are being fought in different spots around the world, there have been numerous men and women who have shed their blood on foreign soil and national soil so that we might have the opportunity to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There has been a great price that has been paid for our freedom and the liberties that we have. But far more important than that, as important as that is, and we all love our nation, we love uh, and respect those members who have laid down their lives so we might enjoy these liberties and freedom. Far beyond that, surpassing all of that, however, is the precious blood that we find from the very exit, the entrance in the Garden of Eden to the gates of heaven, that there is a thread that's a crimson thread that we find throughout Scripture that just as the spilled blood of men and women have gained our independence and our freedom, it is the blood that reckons, that considers our sins forgiven and us to be able to have the ability to have independence, freedom from sin, and relationship to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. All the way through Scripture, the blood of Jesus is not a new thing. It's not something that just happened at the crucifixion. But we find that there is a thread all the way from the very beginning of the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, all the way through the book of Revelation, how vitally necessary and important the blood is. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the book of Genesis. And I want to start all the way back. And actually, you really don't have to turn there. Just follow along with me. We know the account of Adam and Eve in the garden, how God had created Adam and Eve in his image, and he had placed two trees in the garden, one they were free to eat from, and the other one he said, do not eat from that tree. Well, we know the story, right? 
Adam listened to his wife and they ate from the tree. That's a joke. Adam relegated his responsibility and he ate from the tree. And from that moment on, sin had entered the world. Adam disobeyed God. He was disobedient to him. And from that point on, as a representation for all of humanity in the seed of Adam, we have all sinned as well. And all of creation fell. And the moment that Adam and Eve ate and disobeyed God, they were previously at liberty with God in his presence where they walked in fellowship with him day in and day out in the garden. But the moment that they disobeyed God, all of a sudden they recognized that they were naked and they were afraid and they were ashamed. Why is it that they recognized that they were naked and they were afraid and they were ashamed and they tried to cover over their sin by their own works with the fig leaves. The reason that they recognized that they were naked, afraid, and ashamed was because their eyes were open and they saw the sense of the reality that God was a holy God. And as a result of their disobedience to God, they now were sinners and separated in relationship and fellowship from God. It had been broken. No longer were they able to enjoy that freedom of relationship now that their eyes were open and their fellowship with him was broken. We know the story that after that, we had said that Adam and Eve tried to cover their sin by sowing fig leaves in order to cover their nakedness, but the covering of their sin would not be satisfied by a holy God in the works of man trying to cover over his sin. You know, we do that, don't we? Man always has a tendency to want to provide and cover a covering for his or her own sin. But God says, that is not acceptable in my sight. That is not an acceptable covering over for your sin. I'm the one that has to provide a covering over for that. And we know that God had slain the animal, spilling the blood of the animal. And he took Adam and Eve and clothed them, clothed their nakedness. You see... God was making a point there at the very beginning, in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, that it had to be that blood would be shed so that there might be a continual fellowship and relationship with God. You see, it was necessary that blood would be shed for that. And just some time later, came, uh, uh, Adam and Eve began to have a family, and we know that they had their son Cain and that they had their son Abel. And their first act of worship that's recorded in Scripture in Genesis chapter 4 is that the Bible tells us that Cain came before God and he presented an offering to God of some of the fruit and some of the vegetables from what he had gardened, what he had grown by his own hands, and he presented them to God. But Abel, on the other hand, brought the firstborn of his flocks. He was a shepherd. He brought the firstborn of his flocks and he'd slain it and he had offered it to God as a sacrifice. God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice, the shedding of blood and the giving over to him of that first fruit of his flock. But with Cain, the Bible says that God was displeased with and Cain was filled with jealousy and rage and he set up 
about the first premeditated murder that we find in Scripture. He says, hey, Abel, why don't you come out to the field with me and let's hang out in the field or let's work out in the field. And, and so Abel goes along with him and Cain had determined in his heart because of his jealousy that God was acceptable of Abel's sacrifice, but not his own he had rejected. It says that Cain spilled the blood of Abel. He murdered him. Now, we might ask the question, well, both of them offered a sacrifice. Isn't that what God delights in? The Bible says that God does not desire our sacrifices, but it's a broken and a contrite heart that God desires, as David prayed in Psalm 51. But the writer of Hebrews gives us some understanding as to why Cain's sacrifice was rejected, but Abel's was accepted. We read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, where the writer says it was by faith that Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts, and even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. Key word that's used here three times in this verse, faith, faith. And faith, and faith is not faith in our own faith. Faith is a faith and a trust in God's provision for us. And in this particular case, it was faith in believing that God had a provision for the covering over of our sins, that it wasn't something that we could do in our own efforts. It was an acceptable sacrifice because Abel had offered it in faith. You see, what this is showing us in the Bible through the story of Cain and Abel is that there's no possibility for any of us in this room this morning to approach God or to be in presence with Him, to have fellowship with Him, no enjoyment of His favor whatsoever apart from the shed blood. You see, we can't enjoy relationship with God. We cannot enjoy fellowship with God on our own or in our own efforts, but the only way that you and I can enjoy that is through the blood of Jesus. We cannot enjoy fellowship with God through becoming a member of a church. We can't enjoy fellowship with God by doing all of the right things. Even if you kept all the law to its nth degree, that would still keep us from having relationship and fellowship with God. You see, the way that we have relationship and fellowship with God is through the shed blood of His Son Jesus and no other way. Amen. You see, I'm convinced that this morning there'll be a number of people that are coming to worship in this service and the next service who are coming in with a guilty conscience because there's something either today, yesterday, or last week, or last year, or 10 years ago, or 25 years ago that you know that you have sinned against God. And in all that time, you're trying to gain fellowship with God through your own works, your own efforts. Well, maybe if I go to church today, then I can have fellowship with Him. Can I tell you, that will not gain our fellowship. It's already been paid for us. It's already been provided for us. And it's through the blood of His Son, Jesus. Can everybody say amen to that? Amen. Traveling on to Genesis chapter 8, in particular verse 20. After God had called Noah and said, hey, Noah, I want you to build an ark. What's an ark? There's going to be a great flood. Well, what is rain? 
And Noah, by faith, the writer in Hebrews says, sets out on God's command to, to build an ark, and he brings into the ark all the animals two by two. God closed up the ark for 40 days and 40 nights. It rained, and God destroyed all of mankind because the wickedness of man had reached the nostrils of God, and God said, I'm going to wipe it all out, but I am going to save a remnant, and it's going to be Noah and his family. But at the end of that 40 days, when finally the floods have subsided and Noah had recognized that the floods had subsided, God commands Noah that, Noah, you're to release the animals from the ark two by two, and they're going to be fruitful and multiply. And then I want you to take animals of every kind, all the clean animals, and I want you to sacrifice them to me as an offering of sacrifice. And we might ask the question, God, didn't you destroy all evil? No. Because you had Noah and the rest of his family that were still on the ark. You see, just as depraved and a sin nature as you and I are. And it wouldn't be long in the story that we recognize sin was not eradicated. And the first act that Noah did after the animals had been released from the ark was that he made sacrifices, shed their blood, so that God would be pleased to be a coming over of sin. God had said this, made this promise, I will never again destroy the earth even though the inclination of man's heart is evil continually. And so there needed to be a provision, a covering over of that, and so Noah shed the blood. You see, the, the thing that the Scriptures are pointing to us in this is that there, if there is ever to be a hope in the future for us, for every human being, it necessitates that there be shed blood that might give us a future hope. The reason that you and I have a hope of heaven and eternity with Him is not because of our good works or all the things that we do. The reason we have a hope an everlasting hope and assurance of hope is because of the shed blood of his son Jesus Christ and nothing else. Fast forward a little bit to the life of Abraham, Genesis chapter 22. We know in Genesis chapter 12, God had called Abraham from Ur from a place and said, I'm going to send you to a place where I will show you where. It calls him out of the land of the Chaldeans. He called him to follow him, and in Genesis chapter 12 said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and so that you all might be a, a blessing to all nations. And Abraham, from your seed, you're going to have family, that is spiritual family, that will outnumber the, the stars in the sky and the sands on the sea, and it will be through your lineage that that will come. And God had given a promise that there would be a son, even though Sarah's womb was barren and Abraham was old in age himself. Of course, we know in the parentheses part of that, Abraham did what we do oftentimes. When we know that God has a promise for us, we try to take matters into our own hands, don't we? <laughs> Can I put in big parentheses there? Even though it was Sarah's idea, Abraham was not very smart to follow along with his wife's idea. And so he has a son... Not the promised son, a son through the slave Hagar. But that was not what God's plan was. And God opened Sarah's womb and they had the blessed promise, Isaac. 
And so as time would have it, as time goes by, Abraham is told by God, God, I want you to take your, uh, Abraham, I want you to take your son Isaac, the promised one, and I want you to take him to a place where I will show you, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. Abraham sets out on the journey, Isaac not realizing what they're on the journey for, and he gets there to the place and he binds Isaac and he's about to take up the the knife to slay Isaac and all of a sudden there in the thicket a ram is caught and Isaac says, hey dad, look, there's a ram. Isaac was on the lookout, right? showing us that God had provided one who would be a substitute in the place of Isaac, foreshadowing the fact and reality that for us there is a substitute, there was a substitute, and there is a substitute, and that is the blessed Son, Jesus Christ. You see, the reality is we are the one that deserve death. The reality is we are the ones that deserve the wrath and the judgment of God. But God, by his own hand, by his own son, God, very God, became a substitutionary sacrifice for you and me. You see, God was showing that. And through the sacrifice, through the substitution that was made there, God is showing that, listen, the only way to have fellowship with me, the only way to have a relationship with me is that there has to be someone that is a substitutionary sacrifice in your place because there is life in the blood and the remission, the forgiveness of sin requires the shedding of blood. Paul later in the book of Romans chapter 12 verse 1 would tell us this, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true act of worship. And do you recognize what Paul says there? He says, I want you to present your bodies, your whole being to me, to God, as a living sacrifice. Now, that's an oxymoron, isn't it? How can you be a sacrifice? Because typically when a sacrifice is made, that sacrifice is what? Put to death. But he says, present yourselves to me as a living sacrifice, meaning that we lay our lives down and recognize and realize that we belong to him. He doesn't belong to us. You see, it's a living sacrifice. And it's only through death that there can be life. God's been showing that all through the Old Testament. That only by the shedding of blood and death, a foreshadow that that's the only way that there can be life. In our lives personally, in our spiritual walk with God, how often do I fail to recognize that it is only by me dying to myself can I live the life that Christ has called me to live in him? If you're like me, death to self is a very agonizing and painful thing. Go a little bit further in Exodus chapter 12. The children of Israel are there in Egypt and they've been held in bondage and slavery for 400 years and all of a sudden God says, you know, it's time to deliver them. 
And he brings the plagues there on the nation of of Egypt so that they might let the children of Israel go. And the very final plague that God said that he was going to bring was that there was going to be a death angel that was going to pass over. But there was going to be a provision for the children of Israel that when the death angel saw the blood of a spotless lamb sprinkled on the doorpost of their houses that as the death angel would come over he would pass over that house and not kill the firstborn in the home as he would do with the Egyptians and as he saw that there would be a deliverance and there would be a freedom that they might be obtained how is it going to be obtained by the blood You see, the whole Passover story signifies for us that life, deliverance, and freedom can only be obtained by the shedding of blood. You want life this morning? It comes to the blood. You want deliverance this morning? It comes to the blood. You want freedom this morning? It comes only by the blood and not of any human effort that you or I could ever do. Moving fast forward, Exodus chapter 24, we find Moses. Now, the children of Israel have been released from Egypt. They're wandering there in the desert, and God says, Okay, it's time now for me to to give the law so that my people might be recognized as a called-out people, and this will distinguish them from the other nations. And it was when God established the law with the children of Israel, the way that the law was established was through the shedding of blood. First, on the tablets that were given to Moses, the law, there was the blood that was shed there. And then in the temple, the blood was shed there in the, in the temple on the mercy seat. And then lastly, not only was the law sprinkled in blood, meaning a foreshadowing that all the provisions of the law that were there that were impossible for man to keep, that the blood of Jesus that would be slain would be sufficient to satisfy the requirements of the law and it would also be sufficient enough to satisfy the punishment of the law. Aren't you glad for that this morning? I find two things that we oftentimes as believers try to do. We try to live up to the standards of the moral law by our own efforts, and can I say that we fail miserably at it? Or number two, when we sin against God and we know that we've sinned against God, through our own efforts, we try to make up or cover over or pay for that sin that we've committed against God. Aren't you glad this morning that not only the requirements of the law have been satisfied by the blood of Jesus, but the punishment of the law has been satisfied by the blood of Jesus? You see, had it not been sufficient for the punishment of the satisfaction of the law, none of us would be here this morning. But it's by His blood. We go into the tabernacle the center of worship. Everything about the tabernacle in the wilderness was all about the blood. 
There were a group of us this summer that had the opportunity to go to Israel, and we were there for two weeks, and we were able to go into a, a mock-up, a, a scaled mock-up and, and a model of the temple way out in the desert. And let me tell you, the desert there is not like I had ever imagined. You know, I kind of I thought the desert was a little sand around here every now and then, a little cactus here and there. But I have never seen wilderness and desert like I saw in southern Israel as I did on that trip. It is barren. It, there's wilderness. I don't know how anything could ever survive out there. But in that mock-up of the tabernacle, we were able to see that the tabernacle had been constructed where the presence of God dwelt in the holy of holies among his people. But the whole reason for the tabernacle was to show that in order to get to God, in order to be in his presence, it required the shedding of blood. And there on the altar, on the outskirts, on the outer court there in the tabernacle, there was a, an altar that was there, and seven days a week, 24 hours a day, there were animals that were brought, and their blood was slain, and it was poured out, and their bodies were burned. So you get the idea that it was nothing less than a bloodbath all of the time, blood flowing and running, and the smell of flesh burning. So in the people's mind, there was a recognition that there, there had to be this sacrifice, this shedding of blood, so that they might get to that place in the presence of God. And you go into the holy place there just outside of the holy of holies, and, and continually the priests would sprinkle all of the articles there with the blood that had been sacrificed from the animals. But it was in that holy of holies, that place where God dwelt among his people that was entered only one time a year, and that only by the high priest. And the only way that he could enter into that place was continually through the sprinkling of blood that would be sprinkled on the mercy seat, the atonement See, the place where sin was covered over. But in their mind, they knew and they recognized that this was not a permanent covering. It was not a permanent taking place of sin because daily they were continually reminded that they were sinful and there was always a sacrifice that would need to be made. And we're in that very same condition except for the blood of Jesus that has been shed that speaks far louder than any blood of a bull or a goat or a lamb. You see, God was demonstrating that, that through that tabernacle experience and the requirements that were there in the law of the tabernacle, that the only way to have fellowship with God is through the blood. That's why John's writing in his letter he says, listen, I, I, I desire, one of the reasons I'm writing to you is because I want you to have fellowship with the Father, and I want you to have fellowship with the Son, and I want you to have fellowship with one another, but you've got to recognize the only way that we can have fellowship with Him is through the precious blood of Jesus. Jesus, in the fullness of time, Paul says, God sent forth His Son, and the very first declaration of Jesus' earthly ministry, when John the Baptist announced him, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, we have to imagine what that must have been like to the ears of a Jewish person. 
all of their lives for centuries they had known there, there was coming and there needed to be a permanent sacrifice, a shedding of the blood, a pure and spotless lamb that would eradicate and take care of sin forever. And John announces, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, while Jesus spoke of many different things and taught many different things, one of the repetitive things that he continually talks about through the Gospels was the necessity of the Lamb, the Son of God, shedding his blood and us partaking in the blood that would be shed for us on account of us. He says things like this. He says, unless you drink my blood, you have no life in you. Now, Jesus wasn't literally speaking of drinking his blood. As a matter of fact, that was prohibited in the law. But Jesus is speaking figuratively there that, that unless we drink, unless we consume, unless we take of his blood, you have no life in you. There is no way to have relationship or fellowship with God except through the blood of Jesus. Jesus said, he that drinks my blood has eternal life. Notice Jesus didn't say, he who does A, B, C gets to the cooperative program. He said, if you do not have the blood, you do not have eternal life. My blood is drink indeed, he said, and whoever drinks my blood dwells in me and I in him. You see, in the tabernacle, they, wanted to, they, could, they could only get as close to God. But now, Jesus is saying, listen, through my blood that is shed for you, and if you drink of my blood and you dwell in me, then I will dwell in you. I don't think we really grasp it. In the tabernacle, the people couldn't get close to God in the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest and that once a year. But now Jesus is saying, listen, <laughs> what I'm going to provide for you through my shed blood, the blood of Christ, is not only that you will be able to be close to me, not only that you'll be able to have a relationship with me and fellowship with you, but now I am going to dwell in you. His last supper with his disciples, he said this, this cup, the cup of juice that he held, is the new covenant in my blood that is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. Drink all of it. You see, we have a covenant with God that today does not rest on how our performance is, does not rest in form or fashion, but the covenant that we have with God is an everlasting covenant sealed by his blood. You see, when he tells us to partake of his sins, he, he declares this to us. That when we have partaken of the blood of Jesus, trusted the blood of Jesus as a payment and remission for our sin, placed all of our hope in a future eternity is placed squarely in the blood. What he says is, through my blood you are now freed from sin and its penalty. That through my blood you are now set free from the guilt of sin 
The writer in Hebrews says that his blood has cleansed us from a guilty conscience. If you're here this morning and you're plagued with guilt of past sin, you're not recognizing the full significance and power of the blood of Jesus. Now, we can be convicted of sin, and that sin conviction that comes to us should draw us to him that we might say, yes, God, I've sinned against you, but the response to that is, thank you for the shed blood of Jesus that's cleansed me of all of my sin and now can cleanse me of a guilty conscience. When we partake in in his blood, he declares that we are now free from death. So wait a minute, JMO. We're all going to die. Yes, we are. But there's a second death that the Bible talks of in Revelation. And that is the death to eternal damnation and hell separated from God. And by his blood, you and I have been delivered from that second death. I ought to hear hallelujah about right now. We've been freed from the punishment of sin. That does not mean that we won't suffer the consequence of sin. But the punishment that we deserve for our sin has been satisfied when it was poured out on Jesus. You see, without the remission of sin, the doing away with sin, there is no hope of life, eternal life. And by the shedding of his blood, he has assured for us a new life, not only here, but in the future, or might I say it this way. By the appropriation of the blood of Jesus, it is not just for future life, but it is for life here and now today. You see, that without that shedding of blood, we would all be hopeless The writers in the epistles looking back to Jesus make these statements for us, and I'm just going to quote some verses for you this morning. I'll let the Word do its job. Many from the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 12, the writer says this, He, meaning Jesus, entered the most holy place, for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. You see, in the tabernacle, it was only a temporary redemption. As a matter of fact, it only just kind of stayed off the wrath of God. Paul tells us in Romans that all of those sins from that time, all the way past sins, had been passed over by God. So that at the right time when the Son of Jesus was crucified and shed his blood, then those of the Old Testament were looking forward to the shed blood of Jesus, and now he had purchased for them redemption. Verse 14 in that same chapter, how much more with the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we may serve the living God. Brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, Hebrews 10, verse 19, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel as though I am not worthy to enter the Father's presence because I know my stinking flesh. 
And it's when I'm reminded at that point, you can, you can enter in. J-Mo, you, you can enter in with boldness. That means confidence. Because the blood of Jesus has made you holy and righteous in his sight, not by your own works, but by the provision of his blood. And now you can enter in. Chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. Chapter 13, verses 12 and 23, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Hebrews 13, 20, Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Peter writes in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, he says, You were redeemed, you were purchased, you were bought from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Peter uses that word redemption. That's a word that was used in Greek culture related to emancipation. When a slave would be set free, and there was there in the marketplace that slaves would be put up on the blocks and slaves were sold to the person with the highest bid. And he says that you and I were redeemed. We were on that slave block to be sold, held captive. But the one with the means to purchase you and me entered into the marketplace and saw us bound there in chains and not able to be set free. And with enough money to purchase us, bought us unto himself, paid the price for us, and now takes us outside of the marketplace and now sets us free and at liberty where we're now choose to be bondservants of Christ. You see, he purchased us. He redeemed us, not by our own works or any of our own merit, but by his precious blood. Two more verses. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. In him that is Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He richly poured out on us, Romans 3.25, God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. In conclusion... Let me encourage you with these things this morning. As in the case of Abel, trust in his shed blood so that which makes anything that you and I would ever offer to him through our life as acceptable and pleasing to him. Trust in his shed blood as in the case of Noah for a substance for hope in our future is in the case of Abraham and Isaac, trust in his shed blood as a substitutionary sacrifice that was satisfying to a holy God that purchased our redemption. 
It's in the case of the children of Israel captive in Egypt. Trust in his shed blood as a continual covering for your sins and a powerful means for your deliverance. It's in the case of the children in the wilderness and the tabernacle. Trust in the shed blood of Jesus so that at any time and by his blood, you and I can approach the throne of grace with confidence to receive grace and mercy in our time of need. John says in his first letter following that verse of verse 9, he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Two kind of folks in here this morning. Those who have trusted Christ as their Savior, who have the hope of eternal life because you placed your faith and trust in what Christ has done for you and not what you can do for yourself. This morning during this closing song, I'd like for you to use that as an opportunity to respond to this message on the blood. Expressing, acknowledging where we fall short and receiving his forgiveness and favor by the blood of Jesus to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The second type of person here this morning is is one who've never placed their trust in the blood of Jesus. The invitation to you this morning is to respond in this way, recognizing, number one, that, that you are a sinner, that you've sinned against a holy God, and, and the punishment for that sin is death, separation. And there are no amount of things that you can do to provide a covering over for your sins. But be willing to repent this morning. Turn from living your life and trying to live your life in your own means or gain righteousness through your acts of works. They'll never succeed. Repent, turn, and follow him and place your trust in what Jesus has done for you this morning that you might be saved. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.